0: Fathers and brothers, my name is Rob Fawcett. I'm teaching elder at First Church, uh, Greenville, Alabama. Some of you don't recognize me right now because I'm wearing a suit. Uh, but, you know, every once in a while, as I, as I told Brandon, the, the blind squirrel can get a nut. So here, here we are. I'm wearing a suit. Well, this morning, uh, I, what I'm going to do is give an overview, uh, really a, a sketch of the sermon series I will be starting Uh, after Labor Day. And I initially started working out some of these ideas, I don't know, 10 plus years ago, Uh, but I started to put some flesh uh, on these ideas and how I wanted to work them out. Actually in this very church uh, this past uh, May for their their senior uh, graduation uh, night. And then in turn I worked it out just a little bit more for a baccalaureate service in my own town at, at Fort Dale Academy, and, and the response uh, to both those talks was, was surprising to me, and I thought, well, this might actually be good for my, my own people, too, so i am turned it into a, a six or, I don't know, maybe seven-week series. So I still have to work all the texts out that I plan on using, and again, this morning, this, this is not so much a sermon as I'm trying to give you a sketch of what I'm going to be doing uh, in my own church Even so, the focus of the series can be really crystallized on Galatians 2.20 and Paul's summary, I think, of, of the doctrine of union with Christ. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to Christ. Let me pray for us as we enter into this time with his word. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for this presbytery. I thank you for what a blessing they have been to so many people, including me over this last decade or so. I thank you for these men. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for their dependence on you. I pray your blessings on what we'll be doing here today. But I pray a blessing for our time together with you right now. For our meditation on this word and on issues, cultural issues, facing the church right now. So I pray that I'd be clear and I'd get out of the way and that Jesus might be seen. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, union with Christ uh, touches on and interacts with a lot of other doctrines, perhaps chiefly with sanctification. And not least with our understanding of the sacraments and really the basis of our Christian morality. Now, as an aside for this sermon series, and today too, I I am heavily, heavily dependent on the work of Grant McCaskill on his work on Union with Christ. He has two different books that I think are, are excellent and I also have Rankin-Wilburn's book that came out, I don't know, six, seven years ago on union with Christ, kind of in the back of my mind too. So anything that, that comes out of this series that's good or worthwhile or useful or in the sermon today, it all comes from them. And so I'm just saying this up front in front of the Presbytery so I don't get called out for plagiarism. Uh, it's, it's Grant McCaskill, and that dude is is so sharp and really good. Even so, the specific problem or problems that I think union with Christ answers in our current times can be summarized, perhaps typified in Henry Nouwen's insightful lectures on Christian identity that date back to, I wanna say the mid-90s. So as you all know, identity is one of the defining issues of, of our day. So for example, virtually every movie that Pixar, Disney, Star Wars and Marvel has made centers on the main character trying to figure out who he or or she is. So in that sense, if you think about it, Darth Vader and Elsa from Frozen are pretty much the same character. (laughs) And it's very much like what what Taylor Swift said uh, this past May at her graduation from NYU. She said, I know it can be really overwhelming Figuring out who to be and when. Who you are is, is totally uh, up to you. And, and it's really difficult, as she says, to figure out where you want to go, who you want to be, figuring out everything about who you are. So who you are now and how, how to act in order to get to where you want to go. And she says, I have some good news. This is totally up to you. This is totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news, she says. It's totally up to you. So if this is how reality works, that we define who we are or, or we have the responsibility to discover you know, deep within ourselves who we truly are, then, then Taylor, which by the fan. I'm a, fa- I'm a fan of Taylor Swift. I like her music. But if she's right, then it's terrifying. This is terrifying. How can you ever know if you've really figured out who you are? How can you know you've got it right? So it's why when I was doing college ministry that dates really to the late 90s uh, into the mid-2000s, students were paralyzed. They were paralyzed over whether they were choosing the right major or the right person to marry. So what if there is something or someone better who is just around the corner? What if this job or this couch does not reflect who I really am. And nearly two deca- decades later, it's it is so much worse. I mean, how do I know if I'm I, I'm really a man, and not say a cat stuck in a man's body, which, by the way, is a real example I saw on Twitter last week. But a moment's reflection shows that you, that you you do not. You do not create your own reality or choose your own identity as if life is a, an elaborate version of, of picking a costume for Halloween. You know, I no more chose my name than I chose my skin color or my parents or my height or my gender or when I would start balding. So even as everything is pushing us in America to believe and live as though we are individually wrapped and hermetically sealed humans who can cultivate who we are by way of which products we buy or friends we choose or feelings we have or political movements that fit with whatever our chosen identity is, union with Christ offers a very different countercultural perspective on what a human is and therefore who God says we are. It's like what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and that language is huge, right? In Christ. Just start reading Paul, and you'll see how important that language is. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I don't think he's being figurative. If you belong to Jesus, then you are actually and truly united to him right now through the spirit, and you've been given a new identity, a whole new being in him, in him. And this identity is a gift. It's not your creation. It's not something you cultivate apart from God, and you do not define the terms of this arrangement. So you're no longer marked out as belonging to the world or to yourself. No, you are not your own as the Heidelberg Catechism so wisely puts it. No, you belong, body, heart, mind, soul, every last cell of your being to this God, to him. You belong. But it's it's more than this. It's more than this. As Paul says, it's no longer you who lives as an isolated, autonomous, self-defining individual, but Christ who lives in you. It's why Paul so often speaks of himself in terms of being a slave to Christ. And he thinks that's a good thing. He thinks that's a good thing. Paul doesn't merely belong to the triune God, though that's true, he's indwelled by him as a living temple. And this was not a voluntary arrangement as if belonging to Christ is like having a Netflix subscription. As both Jesus and Paul understood to live life on your own terms, to be a self-made or self-defined man, to pursue happiness as the goal of your life, as so many Americans do, including American Christians, is death. It's death. No, if we understand Paul correctly in Galatians 2.20, we should read him, I think, as, as Grant McCaskill suggests we do. This is his words. He says, It's not a principle or an ideology or my desires that defines me. It's a person, and it's no longer Paul, but Paul in Christ. It's Paul. Paul in himself is a thing of the past. That's gone. It's Paul in Christ. So even as, as we belong to Christ, and want to live for Him, there's always a temptation, right? There's always a temptation to believe that something else is better or more trustworthy or more relevant to my life right now. Thank you, Tim Keller, for making a career out of teaching that very thing. And Though, like the Galatians, we often begin well, having come to faith through the Spirit, we have perhaps started to pursue a different gospel And in turn, look to create an identity, even as Christians, an identity apart from the one we have been given in Christ. And Henry Nouwen talks about this temptation in terms of the five lies of identity. Probably some of you, I'm sure, have heard of this before. The five lies of identity. They are, number one, I am what I have. Number two is, I am what I do. Number three, I am what other people say or think of me. Uh, number four, I am nothing more than my worst moment. And number five, I am nothing less than my best moment. Now, all of these lies are important, and as you can just start thinking through them, they all overlap. They all overlap in some, some way. But for the sake of time and for the sake of presbytery, I'm only going to touch on three uh, out of the five. And again, I think union with Christ answers every, every single one of this, even if I don't specifically show you how. All right, line number one, I am what I have. I am what I have. So if you have nice stuff or a good amount of money, whatever that means, uh, then you, by definition, have value and worth. So this is where the, the meaning of the phrase, the clothes make the man, comes from. It's why where I live, it's common for people to put their favorite brands on the back of Windows of their vehicles, so we do it because we think those brands give us meaning, or value, or perhaps status. So what they're basically saying is, I identify with Yeti, or Matthews Bowes, or Salt Life, or a highway called 38. <laughs> you know, and of course, no one puts a a cheap brand on their car, so you don't see Igloo. right? And you don't see I-65. Yeah. No, so think of it this way. The negative version of this is that if you think your stuff isn't very good, maybe uh, it's, it's not as shiny. Say your vehicle is not as, as shiny, or, or in the case of pastors, perhaps your church is not nearly so big as some other church, then we assume our personal value is not very much. And now one points out that, that greed and lust spring from this lie. I am what I have, because what you have, because you're using it to define yourself, is never going to be enough. It's why men can simultaneously claim to love their wives and actively lust after other women. It's not that they don't love their wives, it's that their wives are not enough. And they think they can do better. Now, of course, it's not isolated to material possessions or spouses. It extends to things like your body or your talents. So because I have a beautiful face, this is hypothetical, <laughs> because I have a beautiful face or, or a six-pack or maybe a good brain or, or musical giftedness, then I have worth and value, maybe more so than my neighbor. Before moving to, to Greenville in 2013, I lived the previous 15 years, not really by choice, but I, I grew to like it, the previous 15 years in St. Louis, Missouri, and before that I had grown up in Chattanooga, Tennessee till I was 25. And in St. Louis, uh, in the PCA circles there, the mark of the fashionable mom is a minivan. It was a minivan, in particular Honda Odysseys, and among men it tended to be midsize SUVs or sedans. So when we moved to Greenville, we were made fun of almost instantly because of our cars. We were a Honda family at the time, and, and I was told, this was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but not really. I did not become a man until I brought my Chevy Silverado. <laughs> I was 44, and finally, man car. And now it's gone. The, the truck is gone. But did that truck, let's, let's ask the question, because this is real. Did that truck really make me a man? It made it easier to fit in, especially at the hunt camp. But did it make me a man? Well, let's just put it another way. Just putting on a cowboy hat, make me a cowboy. Not so much. You know, they're just vehicles, or clothes, or a house. And if those things are the measure of your worth, if your identity is found in a Yeti cooler or an expensive highway near Seaside, then you aren't worth much at all. You know, Even so, as I readily admit to struggling with all of this, every last bit of it, the pull of material possessions in defining us is intoxicating. It's intoxicating. But what about your beauty? Or your athletic skills? Or your intellectual virility? Or in the case of pastors, our abilities in the pulpit or our recall of that theological nugget. Surely that's different. Well, that leads to the second lie. I am what I do. So whatever that thing is you do, your vocation, your hobby, your special skill, that thing makes you who you are. That thing becomes the center of your identity. That thing is you. That thing is you. So it's like the documentary Uh, Hero Dreams of Sushi, I think I'm pronouncing his name right. And it's about arguably the best living sushi master in the world and how everything in his life is centered on the craft, the art of making sushi. And he's 85 in the movie, and he doesn't merely have a vocation. He has an obsession, an obsession, and he thinks that's a good thing and that everyone should be like him. And virtually everyone we celebrate is the GOAT, doesn't merely like or love their work. They're obsessive about it. And that thing is who they are. And because we have believed the lie that you are what you do, success in turn has, has become this all-consuming thing. So being good at a specific job or reaching the pinnacle of whatever, you know, having worked really hard, put in all the hours, always hustling, will give you the meaning and satisfaction you've been promised it will. That's the lie. So it's not enough to be an assistant pastor. You need to be a senior pastor. It's not enough to have the privilege of preaching. It's how big your reach is and how influential you are. It's like Mark Driscoll. I'm sure many of you listened to that that podcast, uh, The Downfall of Mars Hill or whatever it was. right? I don't think... Mark Driscoll can conceive of himself apart from being the center of a cult of personality, and you have to wonder if he would continue to be a Christian if he was barred from being a pastor. Personally, I have a Bachelor of Science, two Master's degrees a PhD that took me seven years working full-time to complete. And by the way, my dissertation was turned into a book by Whip and Stock within a year of graduating. And I know for a fact, while all of those things are good and they're useful, all that education has not made anybody love me or made my life complete. And I assumed they would. I assumed they would. The reality is that no one cares. Nope, my mom. (laughs) Everybody else, nobody cares about my degrees or my book or whatever. As they say, the greatest silence you will ever hear is the day your book is published and it's been a deafening silence for nearly nine years. And here's the reality, that we need to be telling our people. You can hustle, You can grind it out. You can work as hard as you can go. Do everything the rules of success tell you to do and still not be successful. Or worse, you'll be successful and you'll be miserable. Just ask Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Two of the most successful, greatest golfers of the last 40 years. Both men have worked really hard. Both men have reached the pinnacle of success, adoration, wealth and both men are miserable. You know, one man wrecked his marriage through adultery with countless women that he had to pay for, the other has accumulated over 40 million in gambling debts. So if you think success equals happiness, including, by the way, ministerial success, whatever that means, think again. Think again. But consider this, what happens when you can no longer do that thing that made you You? What happens after you can't play sports anymore? What happens when your trophies gather dust? What happens when people no longer want to hear your sad old war stories? What happens when your congregation thinks they need someone younger, with a family, who's more relevant, more energetic, and with a newer and better vision for growing the church? What then? I recently read a story of a young man who was. uh, athletically and intellectually gifted. And he had a good shot of being a D1 quarterback. And this was back during the pandemic and in his, his New Mexico town, just right over the border from, from Texas, he was, he was under incredibly, incredibly strict quarantine rules and football was canceled his junior year. And apparently that's the year uh, you need to get noticed to have a shot at being recruited top programs. His identity was so wrapped up in football that the loss of the season and the opportunity to play college ball was more than he could handle, and in his despair, he took his life. Now, that sounds extreme, and of course it is, but that sort of thinking is common. That sort of thinking is common. Now, to be sure, God does give his people purpose and a calling, and he wants us to do something. But that purpose is often lived out in small, ordinary, and mostly overlooked ways. It's the difference between success, I am what I do, and significance, I am Rob in Christ. So success looks like trophies, right? It looks like winning. It looks like chasing after your dreams. It looks like the diplomas on my walls. And those things are fine, right, as far as they go significance is looking to be of value and use to others it's putting other people ahead of yourself it's why Paul when he speaks about the humility uh, humility is one of the defining features of the people of God in Philippians 2 he begins not with law but with Jesus with Jesus the king and how he humbled himself it's why as a coach my favorite award to give out I coached JV basketball and JV soccer. It's why as a coach, my favorite award to give out is always the coach's award, and it goes to the student who has pursued the success of others. Now, I've had success, but I found more meaning and contentment with significance, and I found it with things like changing blowout diapers. In fact, one time I, I I heard the replay of this Uh, Kevin DeYoung was was preaching at Covenant College you know and it's they're all like geared up we want to go change the world kids let's go let's go change the world and he said to them if you want to change the world let me encourage you this is where I actually get this illustration if you want to change the world start by changing somebody else's diaper to which every one of them was like no I want to go down start there don't pursue success, pursue significance. I found it in holding people's hands as they died or coaching kids who are of infinite value to God, but perhaps they will not go on to professional or collegiate athletic careers, and in turn, they are not going to improve my social status or my career if they even remember me. So when I consider those people, when, when I can see them as Christ sees them, I will take significance over success every time because I've learned through bitter tears, bitter tears, I am not what I do. I am Christ in me. Lie number three, I am what other people say or think of me. I spent the most time on that middle point. This third one, hopefully, will go faster, all right? Number three, the basic idea is whatever people say or think about me, then it must be true. Must be true. So if people say I'm beautiful, then I'm beautiful. This is what we call Instagram. If people say I am ugly or terrible, then I'm ugly or terrible. Again, Instagram. Of course, there is some truth to this. We need other people to help us see ourselves accurately. And as we all know... This is exactly what the Word of God does for us in community. You need people speaking the truth to you because you cannot see yourself objectively. But still, more often than not, what we listen to, what we gravitate towards is not the truth, it's what we want to hear. It's why after this service, I could receive 90 compliments, but that one negative Reaction is what I'm going to remember. So you've all been put on note, right? Just don't talk to me, right? And you all know how this works, right? You've, you've preached a sermon. You you've, you feel like you had it going on. You're feeling it. And people are like, oh, pastor, this is so good. Ah, oh, oh, that thing you... Oh. And then that, that one old guy walks through. He's like, he's fine. It keeps going. What do you mean he's fine? This is what my wife says to me, by the way, every week. Like, honey, how was it? It's fine. Thanks, babe. Now, on the flip side of this, on the flip side of this, that criticism has a way of working itself into our heart and mind. And as now one sees it, anger is a natural outgrowth of this lie. So if my worth is dependent on what other people say or think of me, then I'm always hunting for their acceptance. And when I don't get it, it's a hit on my fragile little ego. But there's another side of this that I think is hitting uh, the younger generations particularly hard. What happens? What happens when I am told over and over again just how special I am, just how talented I am, or gifted or wonderful I am, with the expectation, expectation that I will go out and do wonderful things. You will go out and conquer mountains. I'm sure of it. What happens if I can't live up to those expectations? What happens if I'm not that special, but rather I'm, I'm sorry to use this profane language, I'm average or ordinary, or just one more face in the sea of faces. You know, for some, like the kids who've been told that they should be able to play college ball despite the reality of their genetics and the talent that is apparent to everyone except their parents. They try as hard as they can in a losing cause. As Alan Noble describes it in his newest book, it's like the people who go to the slot machines in the casinos, pulling that one-armed bandit over and over again, hoping for a different result because they heard about this one time when a guy hit the jackpot, and so they keep putting the time and money in and pulling the lever hoping for a different result. Because as everybody knows, you miss every shot you don't take. So just keep shooting. It's gonna happen if you're a winner. Now on the flip side of that, for those who have figured out they will never be the star player and maybe their destiny is to ride the bench, they quit the game altogether because they figured they would never win, so why bother playing the game? at all, and I think much of the great resignation, particularly uh, with the epidemic of boys who have grown into men's bodies but have never matured into actual men, can be at least partially explained by this ridiculous, stupid pressure to participate in a game they know they can't win. So you don't have to be extraordinary. You don't have to be unique. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to be a star. Pastor, you don't have to have a Twitter following or have a comment on whatever the hot topic is. You don't have to rise at GEA with a speech that will change everything, and you don't need to be the chair of anything. It is not what other people think of you that truly matters. It is what God thinks of you. And in America, maybe even including in the PCA, Ordinary and average are prison sentences, but not with your God. He not only made you, he likes what he made, and he gave his life for you. So, men, I can't say this enough because I think you all probably struggle with the same stuff I do. You are of infinite worth and value to Christ who indwells you. He indwells you by choice. So it's enough to be a faithful pastor, to die, be quickly forgotten, because the one who made the heavens and the earth not only knows you, he indwells you. So it was like the first two questions of the Heidelberg Catechism. I'll close with this because I think it's the gospel. It says this, My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own It makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Christ is in you. You are in him. That is who you are. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we are not our own. We give you thanks that we are not left to define things on our own, that we are not left to the lie of the serpent, that we would be better off as gods unto to ourselves. Lord, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. We pray all these things through the wonderful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who indwells us through the power of his Spirit. Amen.